So tonight I want to talk to you about sacred space. And it's one of those talks that you get, you know, kind of close to the end of the retreat. So uh, the topic is sacred space. And I want to start off by um, giving you some a definition of sacred space. This is from dictionary.com, where we all go for our definitions these days. First, let's look at sacred. Sacred means devoted or dedicated to a higher purpose. But since, you know, we're all in a very active mode here and and in acknowledgement of our heroic efforts at self-transformation, we really have to take the verb form of sacred. And the verb form of sacred is to sanctify. And there are two meanings of the verb to sanctify that really apply to what we have done here for the last two months or month and what we will be doing hopefully when we go back to our lives. The first meaning of to sanctify is to purify or free from sin. I guess in our Buddhist parlance we would say that our sanctification is actually to purify ourselves from our defilements, um, from our unwholesomeness, our unskillfulness, and to sanctify our hearts and minds by reducing the causes of suffering, which we know are the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. And then the second meaning of to sanctify is to produce or cultivate the cause of blessings to produce or cultivate the cause of blessings or happiness. And we know in our Buddhist parlance that that would mean to cultivate, to cultivate generosity, friendliness, wisdom, sila, and particularly as we have been working this past two months or one month, the five spiritual faculties. So that is the what of sacred space. And then the where of sacred space, the second word is space, and what does space mean? It really has uh, three meaning, three meanings that are relevant to the work that we've been doing. The first is that it's a distance, a distance between two points, objects, or events. Um, and you could say that the sacred space, one way to think about it is just the confine, confines of our zabutons. It can be as small as that or much larger. The second definition of space that's relevant to the work that we've been doing is space is also an element of time. It is time between two points, objects, or events. For example, the space that we take in our day to do our practice. And then finally, there's a third more um, modern definition of space, and that is um, a freedom or opportunity to express ourselves, resolving a personal difficulty, to be alone, etc. An allowance, an understanding, or non-interference. For example, the term or phrase, right now you can help me by giving me some space. <laughs> so that's really the what and the where of our sacred space, and really is an excellent metaphor in my view for the spiritual journey of purification and cultivation. And, you know, I'm a very simple person, and I see the Buddhist path as very simply that, purification and cultivation. It's purification of all our 
um, unwholesome and unskillful um, habits of mind, of body, speech, and mind, and cultivation of all those wonderful, beautiful qualities of mind that really emanate from, emanate from you know, our natural mind or from you know, our ultimate mind. So the reason why I even chose the topic of sacred space was because when I first came into the hall, um, all of you have been here for a very long time, and some of you might realize it, but there is an incredible energy field in this room right now. And I don't know if you guys can feel it. I, I promise you that when, once you leave here in a few days, you will notice that it's not with you anymore. I really guarantee that. And... Um, the reason why I was just so shocked is because when I came into the room, it reminded me of another big, huge ceremony that I do that I've mentioned before, and that's the Sundance. And I just wanted to tell you a little bit about the similarities between that field of energy and the field of energy that's really here right now. Um, they say that that ceremony is very Wakan, very sacred just like this ceremony is an incredibly sacred ceremony of what you're all doing right now. And I was so happy to see the people actually with the Zen clothes because I felt like it was an acknowledgement of a really sacred ceremony that was happening. And any way that people um, you know, signified that they were going through a journey, I thought was just really meaningful. You guys probably did it in other ways that weren't apparent, but... Um, to um, sanctify your space or to make sacred ceremony, you know, I mean, you did it every day just by sitting on your cushions. So let me tell you about the Sundance. So the Sundance Arbor, there's um, sacred space at the Sundance and space for secular space. The Sundance Arbor is actually probably about as big as this room. And it has um, an outer circle and an inner circle that's probably just, you know, like an H-shaped. And um, over that arbor, you know, it's an arbor, there's a bunch of pine boughs. So it, it gives shades for people that are actually coming to support the Sundance, but who aren't dancing. And in the middle of the Sundance, right in the middle of the room there, would be a huge cottonwood tree. And on the cottonwood tree... Um, the community who are dancing and the local community for, uh, where the Sundance that I go is held will go out the day before the Sundance is actually held and get the tree. And it's, you know, as you can imagine, a very big, a very big, uh, very structured production. People have breakfast together and then they get a truck, a flatbed truck, and people go out and pick the tree and certain types of people have to go up and cut the tree and they carry it back to the Sundance grounds. And from a very sacred herd of buffalo that the town keeps, they, uh, one of the buffalo actually offers their heart for the ceremony. And they take the buffalo heart and actually put it at the bottom of the hole where they're going to put the tree. It's a way for the buffalo to, to, um, to bless the ceremony. And then all of the people in the town and the people who have come to um, either support or dance, bring these huge prayer flags. Big, you know, they, I don't know, I'm sure many of you know what tobacco ties are in Indian ceremonies. Big prayer flags of all different colors. Red and green and black and white and blue and, you know, the primary colors. And they'll tie them to the top of the tree. And then the community will lift the tree. 
So that's the way that the, the center space of the sacred space is created. And then they, the way that they mark off the sacred from the secular space, I think, is particularly beautiful. What they do is around the periphery of this big room here, probably every 12 inches, they have something called, you know, just a stick, a stick that they paint red. And it would go, all of the sticks would go all around the circle. And then every single person who comes to the Sundance, either to dance or to support, um, makes 405 tobacco ties, little teeny tobacco ties about this big, also of the primary colors. And they twirl them around, the sticks around. So, um, you know, by the time the Sundance started, there's you know, probably a foot of tobacco ties totally surrounding and creating sacred space from secular space at the Sundance. And then maybe back where that altar is back there, there would be, a, uh, would be the outside of the arbor, the outside of the dance area, where the dancers would um, rest. You know, the dance is between sun up and sun, sundown every day for four days. So, and so what we do is we would dance for two or three hours, and then we would go rest in the arbor for an hour, and, and then come back and dance again. And during the whole time of the dance, um, well... Our, my medicine man was here, you know, a few weeks ago and actually was so kind to bless us all in our journey here, help us to create our sacred space. He said the last Sundance there was about 500 supporters and about 190 Sundancers. So it was quite a big ceremony. And um, so what happens is the people who are going to dance go inside in the back of the arbor and they can't talk or look at anybody who's not in the sacred space because they're considered to be in the spirit world. And for four days, they dance for the, um, for the health of the community, their local community of the state, of the United States, of the continent, of the world. They dance for the health and wellness of the world for four days. And the medicine man and leaders are coaching them the whole time. Remember you're dancing for the people. Remember you're dancing for the people. And um, so as you can imagine, just the amount of spiritual energy that is created is just phenomenal. And um, so they have a few... um, they have a few um, little rituals that they do within the Sundance to acknowledge the power and, of the energy that they create there. Um, one ritual is on the second day of the Sundance, they bring in all the sick people and the children to get blessed. It's the only time that the um, Sundance, Sundance circle is breached by someone who's not dancing. So right in the middle, they bring in all the sick people and the children, and the dancers will all dance around them and touch them. And then on the third day, as a way to signify the sacred space and how hard this dance is, they bring in Mara. Mara comes in. What they do is they have one or two clowns come in with a bucket of water and a ladle and just taunt the dancers. Because, of course, you know, during the sun dance, you don't drink any water or eat any food. So you are just incredibly thirsty. So this clown will come up and dance around with the ladle and, you know, pretend to drink and throw the water on the ground and just really taunt people as a way to, um, you know, have them realize what they're suffering, how much they're suffering. And I was trying to think, what would the clown be if they came in here on, like, the third week? (laughs) Would it be like a hamburger? (laughs) 
Would it be a roast chicken in one of those bags? <laughs> what would the clown bring in on the third week in this, in this sacred ceremony? What would it be? And then finally, on the final day of the dance, um, the final end of the dance, as you can imagine, just the amount of spiritual sacredness inside the arbor and outside the arbor, the amount of sacrifice the local community does to feed, the local community feeds the 500 people that show up. And I looked it up right before I came in. The county where this is held, Shannon County, South Dakota, is the second poorest county in the United States. And, you know, they go to incredible lengths to put on this ceremony. And, you know, a very traditional way, the way that they've been doing it for millennium. And um, so at the end of the ceremony, all of the, all of the people who have been um, dancing outside the arbor, because people who are come to watch or support, they actually dance with the dancers, but they dance outside the arbor the whole time. And so... Um, the dancers will come out and they will, with their pipes, we, we either have pipes or some sage bows or something like that, will touch every single person as we go by. And just the power of that is just incredible. So that was, you know, when I came in here, I was just struck with how Wakan this room was and how much spiritual energy had been um, had been just generated from all of the practice in the room, from two months of practice. Um, when I got here, it was from people already having done a month of practice. So given that story, my question is, how do we create the time and space for practice in our lives as we're getting ready to leave here? And I just wanted to acknowledge that some people are actually leaving here to go do another year of sitting that are in this room. And there are some people here that are going to, on their way to Asia, to do more sitting. So there are some people who this is just in the middle of their intensive practice period. So I just want to acknowledge that, that there's people who are going to be doing a lot more sitting than, and you know, they're not necessarily going to be integrating this back into their everyday life yet. And, you know, just send out a big thank you for that, for those of you who are doing that. You know, that's the same as dancing for the world. And, you know, I so appreciate that. So um, how do we bring sacred space for those of us who are going back to a more mundane existence? How do we bring that into our lives? And I wanted to talk about sacred space as having two poles, um, a huge, large pole and having a more intimate pole. So we know that things like Churches, mosques, stupas, synagogues, and temples are among, among the most profound and permanent elaborate structures of any culture. You know, when we visit any place, one of the things we usually go see is their sacred architecture, their sacred places. So that's one pool of sacred space. It's very grand and very important to cultures. Another, um, on the other end of the pool of sacred space is something incredibly intimate, it, it's meta-intimacy it's meta and is ephemeral and intensely private. It's like what happens with our, what happens on our Zafus and Zabutans. If people knew what was going on in our heads, I mean, it's an incredibly intimate experience, isn't it? To be that close with ourselves. It's a very intimate experience. 
So um, I wanted to talk about the things that can happen in sacred space along these two poles of something very huge and grand and something very intimate. And um, as we return to the world, how we can accomplish these types of sacred spaces in our lives, how we can integrate it. So my first question is, what is it that actually happens in sacred space? So one of the things that happens in sacred space are celebrations. Um, we live our lives and celebrate things like sacraments and developmental milestones of faith. You know, maybe actually coming on this retreat, uh, committing to a one-month intensive practice, is a developmental milestone of faith. It really is. And we're, you know, some of us will go back and have other milestones of our commitment to our Buddhist practice. Other things that happen, um, celebrations that could happen are baptisms, weddings. You know, we have our weekly affirmation of our spiritual values. We have the celebrations of our um, own overcoming of traumas where um, we create a officially sanctioned personal history that includes the faith, effort, and wisdom that arose to overcome life's traumas. We celebrate getting over some of those things. Um, just as one example, me and the two other uh, American Indian people who graduated from the Community Dharma Leader Program, we're actually having a celebration on Columbus Day. We're actually going to hold the Day of Indigenous Presence over at the East Bay Meditation Center. And we're billing it as, come and learn how to decolonize your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we, we are reclaiming that holiday for a, for a really noble and sacred purpose. <laughs> Another thing that we do in sacred, sacred space is actually bereavement. You know, we have ritualized closures. Um, one of the members of our dear beloved Sangha, Margot Adair, some of you might have known her. She was a real um, social activist and an applied meditation teacher and, you know, in this tradition. And she died about six months ago from pan pancreatic cancer. And our Sangha was just so wonderful to really circle her and provide her with a lot of the support that she needed as she was transitioning out. Other types of um, bereavement or ritual closures we have in sacred space are things like Holocaust memorials. Um, at the Sundance that I just described, if one of the dancers passes, there'll be an empty chair in the arbor with his picture on it, just for us to remember that one of our, one of our brothers or sisters is gone. So, so far in sacred space, we have created ceremonies, we have... Um, grieved. A third thing that we can do in sacred space is actually create community. And this is one of, I know, every, most of you have heard this passage. It's one of our favorite little passages from the suttas. It's from the Upada Sutta. Then Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, this is half of the holy life, Lord. Admirable friendships, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie. Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that, the Buddha said. Admirable friendships, admirable companionship, admirable cam camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. When a yogi has admirable people as friends, companions, and comrades, he can be expected to, to develop and pursue the noble eightfold path. So that's another thing that we can do in sacred space. 
But so that's three things that we can do. But I think one of the most important things um, that's related to our purposes here of what we've been doing in the last two months is that in sacred space, we are most concerned with personal and social transformation. That's really what we have been trying to accomplish here. What we try to do is turn temporary states into permanent traits. All of the um, wonderful qualities that we have generated and all of our unskillful qualities that we've let go of a thousand times, we try to institutionalize that in our life. And this is, and how do we do that? We've learned in these two months the use of the five spiritual faculties, which is a very important, important um, teaching in the Buddhist tradition. This is what Bhikkhu Bodhi says about the five spiritual faculties. The qualities that exercise the function of faculties are of humble origin, appearing initially in mundane roles in the course of our everyday lives. In these humble guises, they manifest as trustful confidence in higher values, trustful confidence in higher values, vigorous effort towards the good, attentive awareness, as focused concentration, and as intelligent understanding. The Buddha's teaching does not implant these dispositions into the mind from scratch, but harnesses harnesses these pre-existent capabilities of our nature towards a supermundane goal towards the realization of the unconditioned, thereby conferring upon them a transcendental significance. By assigning them a task that reveals their immense potential and by guiding them along a track that can bring that potential to fulfillment, the Dhamma transforms these commonplace mental factors into spiritual faculties, mighty instruments in the quest for liberation that can fathom the profoundest laws of existence and unlock the doors to the deathless. So these spiritual faculties aren't something that the Buddha decided we were going to generate from scratch. These are capacities of our mind that exist in our everyday walk of life, as they would say in Indian country, our everyday walk of life. And our, our path, you know, within these last two months has been to cultivate them here. But it's not a bad idea to figure out how to cultivate them in our everyday life as well. How are we going to continue to do that? And I um, want to talk a little bit about specifically creating the sacred space for the five spiritual faculties as we go home. So the first spiritual faculty we will all remember is faith and confidence, and we've had some really beautiful talks from my very esteemable mentors here on faith and confidence. They've been really great. And um, faith, is, um, faith is known to control doubt. That's the opposite that it controls. And it's really faith, as um, Bhikkhu Bodhi said, it's faith in higher values, in generosity, goodwill, and the divine abodes and clarity and wisdom over... Um, greed, hatred, and delusion. And, you know, how do we develop faith, or how can we find the faith in our lives? And I just wanted to say one of the uh, sweetest things I heard, actually, was the first day that we were here and we got into groups and we talked about what our um, purpose was or intentions for being here. And one of my CDL sisters, Glenda, actually said, (laughs) she said, I'm here partly because my community needs me to be here because I, my community looks to me as a source of strength. 
And I just thought that was so, such a wonderful reason to practice. It was for, it was for her family and for her community. And I think that we all know, particularly after the time that you've practiced here, you will be the voice of reason wherever you go for a little while. <laughs> You'll be surprised. You will have more clarity and more good intention and more patience than probably most people around you. And please do notice that. That'll be a source of faith for you to realize that you really are a source of strength to your family and your community. So please do um, delight in your goodness when you see that because I guarantee you that that will happen. So about faith and confidence, Sokyam Rimfam Rinpoche says, there is a sacredness to everyone's life. In order to relate to it, you have to build confidence. Because of this need to build confidence, we speak of warriorship. There is a tremendous amount of fear in people's lives. I think it's based on not wanting to reveal oneself. You're always protecting yourself. So the journey of meditation and the journey of Shambhala is one has to be fearless, one has to be brave. One must break out of the world which is comfort-oriented. So um, as part of our sacred space, development of sacred space, we develop faith. And then the second spiritual faculty, of course, is effort. Um, How does effort manifest in our life? How do we create um, sacred space of effort as we go back? Effort as a spiritual faculty is said to control laziness. And I think one of the basic questions that we all have is, is our practice just on our cushions? Or is our effort really... And is our practice really a 24-7 way of life? And um, the way this has manifested in my life is around sanghas. You know, I think I told you all that um, I um, am a peer leader of a sangha, people of color and ally sangha that meets at my house. And um, I also help lead two other sanghas at the University of Washington, and I belong to the local big, huge Seattle Insight Meditation Society. So that's one way that effort really manifests in my life is just organizing people to come to practice. And it's kind of a selfish thing because those are the people that you want to hang around with anyway, isn't it? (laughs) You know, the people who are really doing practice and have good hearts and who will have mindfulness externally and tell you when maybe you're not living up to your highest aspirations. (laughs) Mindfulness externally can be good. I wanted to tell you a quick story about this friend of mine who um, actually I had lunch with a couple Sundays ago when it was my day off. Her name is Lupe, and she's a Mexican-Indian woman. She's a, you know, sun dancer for 20 years, and she has a little property just probably 45 minutes north of here. And when the Sundance leader comes, he comes once a month to give um, spiritual, um, he doctors, he doctors the local people who are sick from physical or mental illness. And she has built a little, her and her husband built a ceremony house on their property and they have a teepee where they do Native American church ceremonies and a little house where they do Yewipi and Yewampi ceremonies, um, sacred rites of the Lakota. And of course, they have a sweat lodge. They sweat every Saturday night there. And so she does all these ceremonies. You know, she manages the medicine man schedule when he comes in once a month, and she holds sweat lodges every Saturday night. And when I had lunch with her a few Saturdays ago, she said, 
yeah, you know, it was my 60th birthday, so I decided I really wanted to do something really special and really spiritual. So I did a 10-day Goenka retreat. (laughs) (laughs) So I just thought that was so, you know, wonderful that someone whose life is so devoted would think that this way is so special that, you know, they wanted to commemorate such a monumental birthday with doing this practice. So um, that is the spiritual faculty of effort and the creation of sacred space. We've talked about that. And then the third, um, the third spiritual faculty is my favorite. I don't know about you guys, but it's mindfulness. Mindfulness, attentive awareness, is said to control heedlessness or not paying attention. Um, And mindfulness is the capacity or potential of consciousness that holds experience in the middle way between suppression and indulgence. Mindfulness holds experience between denial and obsession and sees clearly without taking personally things personally without identifying and without clinging. It's really my very favorite thing. Um... When I, I lived in New Mexico for about 12 years before I moved to Seattle, and I was so incredibly lucky there to work with um, many people from the Navajo Nation. I did, I actually, they would hire me to do research for their Department of Health and their medical clinics. And um, the, some of the cosmology of the Navajo people, first I'd like to say if there are any Navajos or Lakotas in the room, I apologize for probably not getting your religion totally correctly. <laughs> So please give me a break, and um, please do, if, any, if there are any Navajos or Lakotas in here, if you would like to tell me anything about what I'm saying, please do feel free to come and correct me or whatever, just to let you know that. So um, the Navajos create sacred space by acknowledgement of four sacred mountains. Um, that's the boundaries of their sacred area of where they live and where they do their ceremonies and you know, where they live their life. Um, the four set, um, sacred mountains are Mount Blanca, Dawn or Whitechill Mountain, which is to the east of them, Mount Taylor, Blue Bead or Turquoise Mountain, which is to the south of the reservation, the San Francisco Peaks, Abalone Shell Mountain, that is to the west, and Mount Hesperian, Obsidian Sacred Mountain, that is to the north. And I've really appreciated the way that these sacred these boundaries or these mountains have, have um, defined what the sacred space is for the Navajo. And I've taken as my four cardinal areas the four foundations of mindfulness. I feel like that is how I define my sacred space. Wherever I am, I can have mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of Vedana, mindfulness of emotions and thoughts, and mindfulness of the Dhammas, including the five faculties, anywhere I go. And it can always, I can always pull that up to be my, to define my sacred space, to be my cardinal points, my four cardinal points. So regarding mindfulness, one thing that we know from the wonderful Satipatthana Sutta is that we can practice mindfulness internally or externally. And um, I really do believe that mindfulness, as I said in the beginning, um, we want to accomplish both personal and social transformation in our struggles. Um, 
the wonderful um, Buddhist social theorist David Loy says, our present economic system institutionalizes greed. Our militarism institutionalizes ill will. And our corporate media institutionalizes delusion. So I think it's important to talk about when we're creating sacred space, it's not like we're going into empty territory like the settlers thought they were doing when they got here in 1491 or two. It's not virgin territory that we are, we are trying to reclaim when we're creating and generating these spiritual faculties or these good qualities when we're sanctifying ourselves. What we're actually doing is reclaiming this from profane space. From, and one concept that has really gotten, has really grabbed me lately is this concept of a sankara or sankara. It's actually the fourth of the skandhas that uh, Leela talked about. And a sankara is a mental formation, that which has been put together and that which puts together. A sankara refers to conditioned, phenomenal mental dispositions, volitional formations, and, um, that are caused by volition and by and are and cause future volitional arisings. They're conditioned things. They're determinations. They're fabrications. And um, I've been thinking about all those ways in my life that I act in ways that are accepted or accustomed, that are addicted or automatic, ways that I act that are chronic or common or conventional or customary or disciplined in the Foucauldian sense, familiar, fixed, hardened, ingrained, mechanical, normal, ordinary, recurrent, perpetual, permanent, regular, repeated, routine, systematic, steady, standard, and seasoned. All of these ways that we are conditioned to act in the world by, by the big conditioning, by society's greed, hatred, and delusion, by our local community's greed, greed, hatred, and delusions, and that we just carry in our own hearts and our own minds. Um, Leela actually sent me this wonderful example of a institutionalized delusion this afternoon. It was a little ad, or actually a little um, review of a new book that's out. The the name of the book is Cinderella Ate My Daughter. (laughs) Cinderella Ate My Daughter is the name of the book. And uh, here's a little bit from the review of the book. It's about the uh, Disney princess narrative, you know, about the creation of princesses in little girls' lives. Disney, Disney's princess narrative has, has long been a staple of modern g- g- girlhood. But Cinderella Ate My Daughter emphasizes that the princess culture is a 21st century phenomena. Not every, you know, back in history, not every girl wanted to be a princess. In 2001, the revenue generated by Disney-branded princess paraphernalia, such as dolls, costumes, and room decor, was $300 million. Eight years later, that number had risen to a whopping $4 billion dollars. Little girls are no longer consumers of Disney-fied fairy tales. In the new millennium, they have become the consumed. They are consumed by this Disney-fied fairy tale. And predatory marketing is only one of the problems inherent in princess culture. It is 
Um, the author Ornstein believes it is a major source, if not the major source, of the potentially harmful gender and race myths proffered to girls today. Even more insidiously, Disney princesses also prepare young girls to become consumers of a host of cultural products like Bratz dolls, Miley Cyrus, toddler beauty pageants that promote and ultimately normalize and ritualize, sexualized and racialized girlhoods. You know, I don't want to start any papancha in your brains or anything. <laughs> but I just want to point out that we're up against a lot of, we're up against a pretty big, a pretty big force of institutionalized nonsense. <laughs> institutionalized nonsense. That, you know, it's not just our own conditional patternings. We're getting fed it just daily. And um, it's a lot to uproot. It's really a lot to uproot. So that's the third thing. So in sacred space, we generate faith, regenerate effort, we generate mindfulness. And the fourth thing we generate in sacred space is concentration. And that's a really interesting question. How do you generate concentration in everyday life? How would you do that? And according to the text, controlling or focusing, I mean, to developing concentration on our everyday life is about controlling distraction and maybe producing some renunciation. It's about maintaining our alignment with what our core values are and not getting distracted, not cluttering our space. And the way that this manifests in my life is that um, I'm really lucky to actually work in an at American Indian Research Center at the University of Washington. And we've really, you know, have integrated our core values into how we do our work. We start every single meeting with uh, setting an intention. And I've brought that to the group. I think because I'm the oldest person in the research center, they always ask me to say the prayer. So I'm always setting an intention just to remind us all what we're trying to accomplish there. And we call on, you know, the Buddhists and Bodhisattvas of all directions to help us out. Maybe not in those terms, but... Um, I wanted to tell you about this. One of my mentors in um, Seattle who has found a really wonderful way to control distractions in her life. She's a, she's a nun. Her name is the Venerable Damadina. Some of you might know her. She's a wonderful, has been a nun for 25 years. First, probably for 15 years in the Theravadan tradition. And her Theravadan teacher told her to become a Tibetan nun. And we can only imagine why he gave her that advice. But anyway, um, I asked her, I had done a month retreat with her in New Mexico, sitting, with, uh, um, sitting in New Mexico, and I asked her, Venerable Domedina, why did you become a nun, or why is it important for you to be a nun? And she said, Bonnie, it's because I don't want people to talk crap to me. <laughs> She says that when you're in a nun's outfit, people just don't talk a lot of BS to you. And it really makes a lot of sense that you don't have to put up with a lot of chit-chat and stuff that is just distraction that really takes away, you know, what you're being connected with your highest intention. And, um, and then finally... We want to generate um, wisdom or intelligent understanding in our sacred space in our daily lives. How do we bring wisdom to our lives? 
you know, wisdom which is not clinging to an I, me, or mine, understanding the three characteristics, understanding the unsatisfactoriness of all phenomena that we come in contact with, understanding the impermanent nature of everything we experience, and understanding the impersonal nature of everything that arises in us and around us, and the emptiness of all phenomena. This is from, you know, one of our favorite sources of the Dharma, social media, from Facebook. There's a Facebook page called Wisdom Colon, something you can't buy from the supermarket. And on that um, Facebook page are two wonderful quotes, one by Albert Einstein who says, it has become appallingly obvious that our technology has exceeded our humanity. And another by Schumacher who says, in order to make the transition to an environmentally and ethically aware lifestyle, we need to look beyond our cleverness and tap into something much deeper. If we are to survive the crisis we currently face, we need to wake up to the current wisdom, to the creative wisdom that surrounds us and is within us. For wisdom to manifest in our daily lives, we need to be mindful of all that we think, say, and do. To create a deeper sense of purpose and meaning, we need to challenge all that we do that keeps us asleep and unable to live our lives in a way that is more in tune with our deeper nature. So in the last minutes, I would just like to share a few ways that we can bring creative, um, creative ways to bring sacred space into our lives on a more daily basis. And in that, I mean by really thinking about how to cultivate the five spiritual faculties in our life. One um, way that I use a lot that's really easy to do is setting intention is to, you know, whatever you do, you can have it as an intention to awaken. And Pima Chodron says about setting intention, breathing in, breathing out, feeling resentful, feeling happy, being able to drop it, not being able to drop it, eating our food, brushing our teeth, walking, sitting, whatever we're doing could be done with one intention. That intention is that we want to wake up. We want to ripen our love and compassion. And we want to ripen our ability to let go. We want to realize our connection with all beings. Everything in our lives has the potential to wake us up or to put us to sleep. Allowing it to, wake, to, waken, allowing it to waken us is up to us. So dedication of merit is one way to create sacred space. Anywhere you are, at any place. Another way that I use a lot that's also very easy is dedication of merit. You know, regardless of what I do, I'm always actually looking at ways to dedicate merit. And, you know, one thing, one way that I have um, handled or um, chosen to figure out how to do this internship here for the month is I love being as much as I can an attendant to the teachers. So I love being able to pick up their plates after any of our meals. And when I do that, I always dedicate the merit to all of you yogis. Any merit I generate by clearing the plates, I generate to all of you that you might realize your highest aspirations on this retreat. And I just want to tell you, I'm going to say right now, any merit I have generated by being here at all, I want to dedicate to all of you that you might realize your highest aspirations for this retreat. It's all yours. (laughs) 
so dedication of merit you know i i hold uh, i host the local sangha every thursday night at my house and i just love to think about what i'm going to serve i love to get little you know chinese delicacies in the international district by my house or cake or whatever because who knows when you'll be able to offer to somebody like that again you know there's only certain amount of opportunities in our life to be generous and to offer and we should really take every single opportunity that we can because we never know when we'll have one again that's my philosophy um just some final things about creating sacred space i was just so I was really inspired when I actually visited uh, Leela and Trudy's room. They both have little altars in their rooms. They've brought in altars with them. So they have little places where they have the people that they really venerate and all of the meaningful things in their room so it'll always be a reminder to them. I just thought that was really a wonderful little expression of your faith and of your devotion and a way to create sacred space. There's sacred space in their little rooms. Um, you know, one of my friends, dear friends, Ruby Grad, who actually was on the board here, and we know Ruby. <laughs> she actually created a hermitage in her backyard. She actually built a little house where um, monks come and stay, and she and her husband do uh, intensive retreat practice by herself. And we all know there's other ways to create um, to create sacred space in our lives. I love to do chanting. I love to chant the homage and the refuges and the precepts and just try to, um, to maintain sila in my daily life. And I wanted to say just about the pilgrimage of coming to Spirit Rock. I mean, we are in one of the most sacred places of Western Theravada and Buddhism right now. Spirit Rock is one of the most sacred places of Western Theravada and Buddhism. It was created for that purpose, and it has been sanctified with relics and with multiple people coming to sit here, with the devotion of teachers. And um, to me, coming here is like a pilgrimage. So that was another way that we, that we create sacred, we sanctify our lives. So let's sit for a minute. It is our sacred space that allows us to free ourselves from the bonds of past karma, to accomplish things with less effort, to lovingly support ourselves, and to let the truth guide us and the universe assist us in every step of the way.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.